Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive deep into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. I'm Alan. And my name's Abu. And we are back. Yes. It's been a little while, but we're rested, we're restored, and mm-hmm. we are ready to get back into saga with you all, our amazing saga-loving listeners. Yeah, the downtime was nice. And, you know, truthfully, I can't say it was that much downtime, but it was some downtime. (laughs) And my battery is like 10% more recharged. And that's all I need, baby, to get back into Saga. So I'm excited to dive into volume six today. I am as well. Very, very excited about diving into volume six and also excited that on this side of the break we took, we are going to have some new episode formats for you all coming Mm -hmm. at you the rest of this year while we wait for Brian and Fiona to give us new chapters of Saga. That's right. Now, before we get into the first three chapters of Volume 6 today, a quick reminder that, as always, these deep dive read-along episodes will be spoiler-free. So as long as you have read through Chapter 33, you are good to go for today's episode. And just because I want to talk about it a little bit later, I'm going to mention that these chapters, chapter 31, 32, and 33, were originally released in November 2015, December 2015, and January 2016. So just in case mm-hmm. you happen to be interested in that level of saga micro trivia, these chapters originally came out at the end of 2015 <laughs> towards the beginning of 2016. And I read them each month as they came out. And another quick reminder, we love to hear from you. Obviously, we were on our break for a couple of weeks, and so we'd love to hear what you were up to during that time. Did you read any other work from Brian K. Vaughn or Fiona Staples? What else were you reading? Are you excited to get back into Saga? Tell us that, and also your favorite ice cream flavor, at hazelstory at loreparty.com. Don't forget that double S. Once again, hazelstory at loreparty.com. Absolutely. And you can also write in to let us know what you thought of the special bonus episode of our Friendo podcast, The Sandman Unlocked, that we dropped in the feed last week. I know I really enjoy that show, just as I've been enjoying watching the Netflix Sandman show. I hope you all enjoyed the first episode of that podcast that we shared and that you went and threw them a follow because the episodes that came after that first one are also excellent. Okay, that takes care of the welcome. That takes care of the housekeeping. Here's the game plan for today's episode. As usual with these deep dives, we'll start with a brief summary of chapters 31, 32, and 33 today, and then jump into our key takeaways, and then finally wrap up by sharing our favorite panels and quotes from today's reading. So we'll dive into all of that after a short break. We're getting into volume six right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Sorry about those tippy-tappies, by the way. Alan, I don't know if you can hear that, but Hmm. that's just Koji in the background. He loves to backseat produce this podcast, (laughs) and so that's what he's been doing back there. 
Hopefully he'll settle down. I have this image now of my head of like you sitting in front of your mic and then behind you just like nervously <laughs> pacing back and forth is like Koji like looking over your shoulder like a producer might like being like, oh, oh, I don't know about that, Reed. That That is basically what's happening. But this producer falls asleep like 10 minutes into the recording. So hopefully he'll do that here too. I have also worked with some other producers who do that. So... <laughs> All right, so let's dive into chapter 31 here. And we open chapter 31 with what can really only be described as the saddest series of three children holding up drawings depicting the awfulness of war and its impacts on the children of Wreath. Yeah. And then the fourth panel is Hazel, now a couple years older, holding up a picture of a foot with a mouth that's farting and it's apparently named Tootie Stinkfoot. <laughs> and she describes him as a giant footman who has very bad gas. And... I don't know about you, Abu, but when I reread this chapter before we got into recording this episode, this page just like pulled me immediately right back into that saga groove. It's that perfect combination yeah. of like heart-wrenching drama and intensity and trauma, and then just like a hard right turn into like silly weird-ass <laughs> jokes about a talking foot, which is not that out of place in this universe. This universe might have talking foot people. We like, genuinely don't know. So it could just be yeah. a child's imagination, or she may have at some point in her life seen a talking foot person who had really bad gas. And the fact that you had to go down that rabbit hole is the most saga <laughs> thing I've ever heard, right? Like right. you just had to explain that maybe foot people with bad gas exist. <laughs> and that's not weird for saga. That's just saga. It's true. I love it. It's true. <laughs> and so after we get that initial introduction to where Hazel is at now in the next few pages, we come to understand that Hazel is now grown up. She's like maybe four or five. And mm -hmm. she's now in a class with other war orphans, maybe. And that her teacher, Noreen, who's a cricket person of some kind, is a very empathetic teacher. Big, like, elementary school teacher, favorite teacher vibes, and apparently very empathetic to the plight of these kids from Wreath. And she offers to Hazel that if she's feeling, you know, clearly seeing Hazel's jokiness perhaps as a defense mechanism, that if Hazel wants to share anything with her, it will stay private, and it won't be shared with who we now see is the landfall army guards that are stationed outside this classroom. So we're like, oh, shit. This is not just some, like, normal kids' kindergarten class they're armed guards. And then Noreen gives Hazel a copy of a kid's book with a bee on the cover. And eagle-eyed saga fans would have recognized that as a book that Hazel's parents had given her earlier in the series, which triggers Hazel to just sob and gives us a jump cut flashback to the moment we left off at the end of chapter 30, where Hazel and her grandma Clara were separated from her parents on a robot hoof ship with two members of the last revolution. So we get both where are we now in the timeline and a through line back to where we just were. It's like six or seven pages of just delightful storytelling. Yeah. And again, gut-wrenching that Hazel's tears are the things that push us into that flashback. So we're back on this hoof ship and folks are having a hard time communicating. Clara can't understand what other people are saying. They can't understand what she's saying because it turns out that they are now far enough away from Marco and Alana that they're out of range of the translator rings. As they're trying to communicate in some way, bam, a robot royal guard ship appears, one of those giant things we've seen before. And the robots on board are here, presumably still looking for Prince Robot IV. And they realize, wait a second, if we can't capture Prince Robot IV, what we can do is maybe capture some terrorists in his place. Mm. So they spring into action. They fire off a warning over the intercom and then they zap the hoof ship with some sort of like 
zappy disability ray that knocks everyone to the ground. And this gives Clara the opportunity to grab one of the weapons that has come loose and in a shocking full page panel, just behead one of the last revolution guys right in front of Hazel. And Hazel's narration here is just adds to the gut punch because she says over the years, Auntie Lexus would become very protective of me, which was sweet, but rarely necessary. I'd pretty much seen it all before. Yeah. And Auntie Lexus there is the other member of the last revolution who didn't get beheaded, who like is very chill about like, yo, 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 your family is super fucked up. I don't care, but we got to figure out what to do now. Right. (laughs) Don't behead me. We have bigger problems. There's robots knocking on our door. So Auntie Lexus and Clara decide they have bigger fish to fry and ally up and basically feed the Royal Guard this story so that they are sent to a detention center where we see them later. And the story, it ends up, was actually super clever because there's some Hazel narration that then explains as we see shots of the outside of this like super elaborate detention tower prison camp thing. Yeah. The Hazel narration explains that they made up a story about the three of them having been slaves of the last revolution, which like the last revolution doesn't keep slaves, but clearly the Landfallians don't know that and they believe that that would be a thing. So then they get to the detention center and there's a very intense Landfallian guard soldier who wants to strip search the three of them, which would be very bad because then Hazel would be revealed as having wings as well as horns. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, this like very kindly pig doctor shows up talking about how important (laughs) it is to treat prisoners fairly. And when the soldier is like not having it and like, well, no, this is war. Fuck it. Also, they're Moonies who so they're not people, which is the thing that she says. So obviously very like racist there um, or speciesist or whatever. But then the pig doctor changes her mind by saying, oh, so the kind of slaves that these women were were comfort women. Do you know what that means? And then the soldier immediately changes her tune, realizes that these women have been abused and leaves the doctor alone with them with a sort of dust off of like, oh, well, whatever, you deal with them. And then we realize that the doctor is in fact Isabel, who explains that she's been not here in her ghostly form this entire time because while they were being held by the last revolution, the last revolution made sure that there was never any darkness by being always in the sunlight. And so Isabel could never come out. So, which is cool, solved the problem for that moment, avoided that strip search. But the question that then gets asked at the end of that sequence is like, well, how long can you keep Hazel's secret? And the answer is delivered immediately in the form of a cupcake with a four on it, which is just a delightful <laughs> piece of storytelling that's like, how long yeah. can you keep this secret? Apparently until her next birthday. And so we get introduced in this narrative to the, the teacher character from the opening sequence. And so here we have Noreen, our cricket teacher, giving Hazel a cupcake, which is apparently not a normal thing because Hazel is very excited about it and also just houses the whole thing right into her face, covers her whole face in chocolate. And Noreen, the teacher, tells Hazel that she's excited to have her in her class in the next year. And Hazel runs off to go tell her grandma. Right. And this is where we want to pause for a little bit, because here is where we meet a new character named Petrichor. Mm -hmm. And Petrichor is a trans character, which becomes very obviously apparent as soon as you flip the page and you get a full page spread of Petrichor in the shower. Mm -hmm. And while for its time, this was groundbreaking to have an openly trans character 
in your in your story like this like in your in your it's like yeah right they wrote this in 2015 which is like there was not a lot of if any trans visibility in almost any media so the idea that they made a decision right to have a trans character and to not really even have that be a central part of the character's identity although it is a little bit but there have been reactions to the way in which the character was portrayed including the fact that in this first introduction to the character they're fully nude and so it's just sort of like hit in the face with like their transness rather than letting them be a person first and a lot of people a lot more equipped to talk about things like this and their experience with them have written about it i would welcome you to go seek those out but petrichor is a great character but had to acknowledge at least that there's some folks who have mixed feelings about her and the way in which she was introduced all of that aside back to the story abu absolutely getting back to the scene hazel comes across petrichor in the showers and it's at this point, after a quick conversation with Petrichor, Granny Clara appears, all tatted up. <laughs> covered. Covered in prison ink. <laughs> covered in prison ink. It has been a couple of years, clearly. And in blue, she says, get away from it, which is obviously a very fucked up thing for Granny Clara to say, to call Petrichor it. And it perhaps shows us how people from Wreath are closed-minded about Rethians being trans. This gives us some cultural insight into where they are right. as a people, or at least where Granny's generation is when it comes to trans Rethians. It's not even just Granny, though, because in the next, there's another line in blue on that page where Hazel asks Petrichor if her being trans is the reason why the other prisoners in the prison don't invite her to, and then there's like a word in blue and it means potlucks. So apparently like mm. when they have community dinners, they don't invite Petrichor, presumably because they're like not allowing her to be a part of their community. So yeah. it does seem to indicate that like, this is not an accepted thing within this society. And some people are certainly very close-minded about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, from that scene, Granny takes Hazel away and we get some narration that brings us back to the present where a teary-eyed Hazel is holding that children's storybook about the bumblebee. And she asks her teacher, Noreen, what Noreen thinks about the wings. And when Noreen kind of replies and is like, eh, I'm okay with them, they're not that bad, Hazel decides, okay, I think I trust this person enough to tell them. And so she shows Noreen her wings, takes off her shirt, takes off the bandages that sort of conceal her wings, and presents them. Mm -hmm. Noreen's reaction is understandable to a certain extent. She's utterly shocked, wide-eyed in this next panel, and then she passes out, hits her head on the corner of the table, and is knocked out on the floor. And this chapter ends with a very scared-looking Hazel looking at her teacher who has had enough of a head injury to be bleeding out on the floor unconscious. Yeah. And she says, quote, oh, fart, end quote. <laughs> well, and... I had this thought, this is a big deal for not anymore baby Hazel, but it's the first time that Hazel's ever revealed something about herself to somebody outside of her like core family unit. And that the result is this yeah. horrible trauma. I'm like, this child is fucked. This child is not going to have any kind of like ability to be well adjusted to anything because so many awful right. things keep happening to her. And just even then, though, the joke that she just ends with going, oh, fart. And that's just how the chapter ends. It's just like, God damn it, Brian. <laughs> and sh so showing us her age too. Oh yeah. Like it, it wasn't a, oh fuck or an <laughs> oh shit or right. a, oh no. It so, was a, oh, oh fart. Because this is still a, a young child, like a four or five-ish year old child that we're talking about. 
And then, of course, because we get left on this terrible, traumatic scene cliffhanger, what do you think is going to start off the next chapter, Abu? <laughs> I'm sure what you're going to tell me is that we're going to start off immediately with finding out what happens to poor Noreen. Maybe in another timeline, Alan, <laughs> but not this one. Not the one that we exist in, because in classic saga fashion, we pick up nowhere near Hazel. We actually start chapter 32 with her parents. We start with a full page spread of a real angry looking bearded Marco with his hand around Alana's throat. And what's basically going on in this scene is an elaborate ruse to fool the security guard to get inside some sort of secure facility. And we learn they're trying to get inside this facility because they're here looking for clues as to where Hazel has been taken. So once they get past this guard, their next step is, to, <laughs> this is incredible, to climb an elevator shaft to what they claim is the 70th floor <laughs> of this building. By hand, they climb up <laughs> the like rope inside or the, the cable inside an elevator shaft for 70 floors. And you don't even have to say that. But like right before they go into the elevator shaft, Marco turns to Alana and he says, 70th floor, right? And it's just like, are you just fucking with us? Like they're superheroes incredible. all of a sudden? But sure, why not? No, Alan, they're parents. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Nothing could stop parents, not even gravity. Right, right. And I, I say that jokingly, but we actually do get some backstory here. Like Hazel's narration tells us that they have been on this obsessive quest mm -hmm. to find their daughter for years. Yeah. And actually this quest and them being reunited together has made them closer than ever, in some ways at least. But- we also learned that they haven't been intimate in all this time. There's almost this unspoken vow between them that until they can find Hazel, they cannot, quote unquote, commit the act that created her. Yep. That's some heavy stuff. And I'm going to actually get into it later in one of our takeaways. So dear listener, put a pin in any thoughts you have about that. I have some things to say. Fair enough. Continuing with the scene, they are then faced with a super secure door made out of Dragon bone, apparently. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. No, nothing can break down <laughs> dragon bone, as we all know. Right, right. As we all know. And the way to get through it, basically, Marco uses some fancy-pantsy magic and creates, I guess, a, a skeleton key, which you noted in our script kind of looks a lot like the key from Lock and Key. Yeah. So perhaps a nod from Fiona to another very popular indie comic out there. Once they are past this dragon bone door... Marco and Alana enter a room full of prisoner records that are apparently stored on scrolls. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and not like computers and USB sticks or whatever. No, right. They have computers and they have robots that can talk, but they've stored all their prisoner records on like medieval scrolls. Indeed. Love it. So as the two are looking through these scrolls for any clues about Hazel, they also have a conversation about Marco's magic. And I'm going to be talking a little bit later about that as well, because Marco says something here that is so great. And also, I hate it so much. <laughs> so stay tuned for my favorite quote later in the episode. Our heroes do manage to find a record that says Clara and Hazel and a member of the last revolution were taken to a detainment center on landfall, which is pretty wild. So now we have a location for where chapter 31 took place. And before they can come up with the next plan of action, they're interrupted by the constables, which are these flame people. 
<laughs> these flame cops. They're so <laughs> awful. And like clearly just like a full on depiction of just like corrupt cops with too much power. They can literally burn buildings down and they often do because they don't know how to control their power in a responsible way. Yeah. Dangerous security force to have when the thing you're protecting is paper? Right. A room full of paper? <laughs> right. There's even a little side joke where like after they light some of the paper records on fire, like they're listing off all the charges that they'd charge Alana and Marco with and they just add like destruction of property onto there, clearly meant to like have them cover their ass for the paper that they themselves have lit on fire. Indeed. So faced with the constables, Alana puts her acting to the test and she puts on this show of being a fanatic terrorist who has launched a missile at the building and is ready to die for the cause. And off in the distance, we see the rocket ship tree barreling towards them because she has a little seed with her mm -hmm. that connects her to the tree or connects the tree to her. Something not explained, but makes enough <laughs> sense that I'm like, all right, I buy that. Right, right. And this scares the cowardly constables enough to basically not do their jobs and run away. And so this whole sequence caps off with an amazing set of panels where the rocket ship tree is barreling towards this building and Alana flies out of the window after tossing a chair out <laughs> to break the window. She flies out there and she tells Marco, jump. We're going to jump into this rocket ship tree that is coming at us at full speed. And so Marco does. He trusts his wife. He makes the jump. She catches him midair and they fall through the open door of the rocket ship tree. And, and then they bang, which is what you do <laughs> after, after, a, after a death defying stunt like that. You got to burn off some steam. I think the adrenaline is really pumping. There's there's an appropriate quote from the classic 1993 Sylvester Stallone and Sandra Bullock film Demolition Man about how violence leads to increased sexual desire. <laughs> there's always a place to make a Demolition Man reference is all I'm saying. Wesley Snipes is also in that film. It is a perfect, perfect movie. <laughs> I will trust you on that one. <laughs> to wrap up this scene, they have some post-banging clarity and realize that they are going to need some help. If they want to get Hazel back, they won't be able to do this on their own. And specifically, the help they're going to need is Prince Robot the Fourth. Yep. And then this chapter gets... A uh, quick little like coda scene almost, like a little tacked on scene that lets us know what's been happening on Quietus this whole time. And so we get to see our buddy Goose. Yay, Goose! Like very excitedly riding on his walrus friendo, who we're delighted to see he's been reunited with because they were split up for a while. And he's rolling up on Prince Robot the Fourth, like all super excited, shouting, they're coming, which we then understand that he means that Alana and Marco are the ones that are arriving. And he explains he saw a rocket ship tree, which clearly must be Alana and Marco. And Prince Robot the Fourth is not into that idea. <laughs> he uh, is very much just like, no, fuck those guys. I don't want them around me or my kid. And explains that they are, quote, fetishistic narcissists and that everyone who gets close to them dies. Yikes. Which fair point. Like that is <laughs> nothing about that is incorrect. They are yeah. definitely all of those things. So we close out the chapter on one of the weirder full page panels of this entire series. It's so weird that actually if you search for Saga merch on like Etsy, there are stickers just of the image from this panel because it's just so weird. Yeah. Of Prince Robot the Fourth's son Squire standing in like a medieval jerkin holding a goose by the neck that's been shot with an arrow? 
And it makes <laughs> sense in the context of the scene because we've seen Prince Robot the Fourth earlier in the scene with a bow and arrow. And so like clearly he and Squire are out hunting or whatever. But it just looks so weird and off-putting and like very foreboding in this super creepy way that just hats off to Fiona for being able to take something so like silly and banal and making it kind of creepy looking. Yeah, I mean, talk about a picture is worth a thousand words. This one full page panel makes me so uncomfortable in so many ways. Oh, like, oh, something awful is going to happen, which it's Saga. So probably something awful is going to happen. And of course, you think, oh, so we'll find out in chapter 33. But once again, we do not, which we're once again at the start of chapter 33, dropped into a totally different setting with a totally different set of characters. And characters we get dropped in with in chapter 33 are our intrepid reporter and photojournalist duo and couple of Upshur and Doff, who we find in the middle of discovering that the brand has been killed. Remember remember when the brand was bitten in half by a giant dragon while covered in <laughs> dragon pee? God, I love this story. How could I forget? So Upshur has decided that the brand's death means that they are now free of the effects of the drug that he and Upshur were dosed with that would kill them if they told anybody about Alana and Hazel. And this was the drug that was called Embargan, which is a joke on the practice in journalism of having an embargo on something where you're not allowed to tell somebody about something. So there's a drug called Embargan. Just the, the, <laughs> the nerdy jokery is deep. So Doff, though, is not so sure that that's how Embargan works, that just because the brand is dead, that they won't still die if they tell anybody else about the story. Right. Upshur is like so confident though that he just like runs out into the hallway and does a classic like what people think newsrooms are like moment where he goes, hey chief, to his editor and <laughs> tells the editor that Hazel exists as a love child between a soldier from Landfall and an enemy fighter from Wreath. And the editor scoffs it and is like, oh, you and your six seconds of humor, blah, 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 blah. In like, again, very like 1950s how an editor in a newsroom talks mode. Right. <laughs> so he brushes them off, but they don't die. So that's great. Yeah. Now they know they can tell their story. And so they get to it. They get to the business of reporting, <laughs> which when you flip the page, you realize means waiting around in an airport. Waiting around in an airport and talking with your reporter friends about whether you're wasting your life doing reporting and whether it's worth yeah. doing or not, which I actually really, really appreciated because <laughs> everybody who's ever done any kind of journalism work at some point, you're like, what am I doing? Like, I'm telling other people's stories to strangers for a living. Why is that a job? And then luckily they come to their senses and are like, oh, this is an important story and it needs to be told and blah, 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 blah. So they push forward with their quest. Right. Right. And they actually have a clue to help them push forward with their quest, too. It's a very small, very obscure clue. But recall that Upshur had heard a D. Oswald heist line from Alana on the open circuit. So he realizes there's some connection to the open circuit. And this clue ultimately leads them to some place called the Uncanny Valley, which is a hilarious name. Delightful. Where the circuit has been broadcasting from. And that ultimately leads them to Ginny. Remember her? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, fucking Ginny. Hazel's ballet teacher, Ginny. And so Ginny talks to the two reporters and she fills in some gaps for us as the reader and also for Upshur and Doff as well by telling them that she last saw Marco when he came to get her grandpa's shield and sword off the wall, which we actually have seen Marco use in action. He's carrying that shield around and now we know where it's from. And the last time she had communicated with him was when he called her from a payphone on a planet that was, quote unquote, in the deep northeast, some planet called Outcome, 
which apparently is the last stop before the solar graveyard. We're getting a lot of galactic terminology here. <laughs> well, I love this sort of like weird, nonsensical word salad world building. Like, yeah, it could mean something <laughs> and it could be part of a larger system, but it's probably not. It's probably just like right. he didn't want to call it the Outer Rim and he didn't want to call it like whatever. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like half of these names are just jokes that Brian <laughs> felt like saying, like bad puns or yep. silly jokes. Absolutely. And the other half, you're like, OK, I believe that could be a thing, right? Like sure. the solar graveyard probably exists. But, you know, that's it. It's a throwaway line. We don't ever actually learn what that means. Totally. Anyway, moving on from that in the next scene, Upshur and Doff are basically doing a lot of matter of fact work talk about the story that they're working on while banging there's a lot of banging going on a lot of banging chapters. which you know saga <laughs> they wanted to remind you that like they're very into showing all aspects of the personal condition including people yeah. getting it on yeah and as much as journalism never sleeps <laughs> the this scene does again feel a little on the nose like considering petrichor's entrance in like yeah. a sort of full-on full page of the comic Right. This also feels a little on the nose. Like, hey, look, we have a gay couple and they're having sex right. while they're talking about work. Look at this gay couple. It kind of feels right. a little too much like shine the light on. It feels a little forced. On their sexuality. And, right. Yeah. Like, I know every couple has their thing. And like, sure, this could be this couple's thing. And it's the biggest story of their careers. But it does seem like they might be able to like separate out talking through their strategy for the story. And having their intimacy i don't know it's always really really hard to like analyze what somebody's intent was and i think it's best to just sort of be like all right so that happened and then we move on yeah and so wrapping up this chapter this final chapter for today's reading in the next scene they decide to head to a frozen planet their reporting has led them to this place mm -hmm. and from space somehow. <laughs> it's the newt eye lens, Abu. He uses his newt eye lens that can see heat signatures. Uh -huh. Yep. That's how that's explained. It can see heat signatures from space. Yes. I. You know what? I believe it. I believe it as much as I believe the solar graveyard exists. They managed to find the skull ship that Prince Robot IV and Margo had crash landed on this planet a few chapters ago. And so they land and start investigating. But before they can piece together the whole scene and figure out exactly what happened, they are accosted by the Will and Sweet Boy. So happy to see Sweet Boy still yeah. around and kicking. Less happy to see the Will is <laughs> out here still doing freelancer work or something. He's got his lance back. And so the Will holds the two reporters at Lance Point, basically, and tells them that he is looking for Prince Robot the Fourth. Mm -hmm. And now they work for him. And that's that's it. That's where the first half of volume six ends. We've got all three of our characters set up on paths to find each other, which seem pretty likely to all lead back to Hazel because it is her story after all. That's right. And that was almost a takeaway, but not quite. <laughs> so before you and I get to our own real takeaways, as well as our favorite panels and pages, we're going to take a quick break. So don't go away. And we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Koji has officially fallen asleep. Y'all haven't heard a tippy tap 
in a long time. That's because he's fast asleep. It's time for our takeaways. Alan, let's hear it. What's your first takeaway from these three chapters that we read today? So my main takeaway from these chapters was kind of a thing about how like big worlds and fantastic empires that are created as stories are really built on the shoulders of just like very regular people in very mundane roles. And more mm. than that, like what happens in the universe is, is actually impacted by the choices made by those very mundane regular people in those like very mundane roles that ends up having a huge impact. And maybe I'm thinking about this because I just rewatched Rogue One in anticipation of the new Star Wars Andor series coming out this week, which FYI, if you're into Star Wars stories, we're dropping some very special coverage of Andor on our sister show, Lore Party, very soon. So strongly recommend, strongly encourage, go follow that show if you are into Andor and want to hear some other folks from our network nerding out about it. Anyway, I've just gotten really into these like small human decisions in stories that motivate people inside of like these giant like, you know, empires or whatever. And so in the story, you get a bunch of that. So in the first chapter, we get these two royal guard robots who show up and just make the sort of casual decision not to obliterate Alana and Hazel because yeah. they have fucked up and lost Prince Robot again, but they say the line, they're like, oh, maybe if we bring some of these prisoners in, we can appease our bosses, which like, that's their concern. They don't care about what's right, like destroying the enemy. They just want to make sure they're not in trouble with their bosses, which relatable. Yeah. And then in that same chapter, <laughs> once we get to the secret prison, we get this prison guard who shows compassion to Alana and Hazel only once she thinks that they've been abused. So once she has like a humanizing connection to them, she's the one who just makes that decision to walk away. And so in that careful decision, once again, she allows the narrative to move forward in a way that it would not otherwise have done if she hadn't made that like small human decision. Hmm. And then finally, there's the teacher in Hazel's class who shows this special compassion to her, presumably because she can tell how traumatized Hazel is. And like none of these people have to act in these ways. And none of them are like what a flat, static, boring character in this role might do, right? They're not acting like non-playable characters in video games who just sort of like move around like robots. They're acting like full fleshed out human beings making choices. And those choices are what ultimately moves the story forward. And we get more of that later on in the next chapter when the constables even like run away rather than risk getting blown up by a suicide attack, right? Like they pull a very, yeah. I keep saying human in reference to non-human characters, but I feel like that happens all the time and just go for it. They make the very human reaction of like being like, oh, self-preservation is more important than catching terrorists and they run away. And then in that last chapter, you even get Ginny like just spilling her guts out to these reporters based entirely on her devotion to Marco. But like all these characters make these decisions that are ultimately what moves this story forward and fills in the gap of these years. But none of them are like what we would think of as the proper decision for like the static, boring version of their character. All of them are just this great part and piece of Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona's ability to create this believable and relatable, fantastical, totally absurd world where a talking footman with gas could exist, but I still have like round full characters even if they're just very minor characters, like those two robots who get 30 seconds of screen time, but their decision is ultimately what moves the story forward. Yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah, I really love this takeaway. Such a great point that it takes the actions of these seemingly minor characters to push not only our narrative forward, but to push our main characters forward as well. Like Hazel has her breakdown moment and this open and honest moment where she opens up to Noreen, her teacher, because of the compassion that her teacher has presumably shown the whole time she knew Hazel. Right. And I think to your point about even the side characters being well-rounded, they act in ways that 
makes sense in that moment for mm-hmm. people like them, right. right? Like the Royal Guards care about not pissing off their boss. It's an act of self-preservation. They're not making a choice because it's perfect for the narrative or convenient for our characters. They're doing something that's for them. Mm-hmm. And the same same with the constables. It's an act of preservation that makes sense for who they are in that world right? and wh- what, their, what their place is. And you're so right that many stories will default to these quote-unquote NPC characters just as mm-hmm. sort of story lovers, right? To push the story to the next thing or to have something for our main characters to bounce off of. Right. And obviously every story needs a little bit of that, but I think the way, to your point, like the way Brian and Fiona have even the minor characters behave in this world is so believable that it adds that depth and relatability. Well, it's because you'd made a good point about the motivation behind the way the characters make choices, and it's all about agency. They all take agency over their own life rather than just going along with the story. Yeah, it's they're just such good storytellers. What about you, Abu? What was your takeaway from these chapters? The big takeaway for me was this idea that growth is something that is slow, it's incremental, it's oftentimes uncomfortable, and it's full of setbacks. I think we see examples of that throughout these three chapters, because as we know, there's been a significant time jump when we jump into the story now. We get some backstory filled in through flashbacks and through characters like Ginny filling us in, but it's been a couple of years now. And at first glance, on the surface, it seems like maybe our heroes have had some growth off page. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've learned from their mistakes or they've they've processed some of their trauma or they've moved on from their pasts. And then as the story progresses and as you read these pages, you see them sort of regress into their old habits, the habits we've seen ever since volume one. So I wanted to talk about just a couple of quick examples of that here, just to illustrate my point, starting with Hazel. Hazel, as we discussed, is now a toddler. She's like four, maybe five years old at this point. We don't know the exact age. And in the years apart from her parents, When we meet her, we're under the impression that she has toughened up and that she has grown independent, right? She has seen so much in her life. She has experienced so much horror and trauma. It's made her strong. Mm -hmm. She even sort of tells us this. The quote I shared earlier from that page where Clara smashes the last revolution man's head, she says, over the years, Auntie Alexis would have become very protective of me, which was sweet, but rarely necessary. I'd pretty much seen it all before. Hazel's narration is telling us, no, this doesn't phase me anymore. I'm too grown up for this. Right. But that idea is quickly turned on its head when later in chapter 31, we see how this toughness and this jokiness that Hazel puts on in class is a defense mechanism against the very real trauma that she has faced for basically her entire life from the moment she was born. And her being triggered by the book and opening up to Noreen shows us that despite the toughness that she may have, despite some of the independence she may have now, she still very much needs her parents. She still very much needs an adult figure in her life, someone she can open up to and be vulnerable with and someone with whom she can be her full self, wings and horns and all. And so we see that, yes, perhaps there's been some growth, but Hazel still has growing to do. And the tears and the trigger from the book show us that yeah, there's some challenges and setbacks ahead for, for her as well. Another example of this is her parents, Marco and Alana. Again, when we meet them, we're led to believe that 
They've seemingly patched up the cracks in their relationship because they had that big fight back in volume four. Mm -hmm. And perhaps they're once again the lovable, badass duo that we first met at the start of this story. But then once you get into chapter 32, we start seeing some subtle ways that they're relapsing into their old behaviors. And the one that really stood out to me was Marco, because we're told that he is once again really obsessed with his nonviolent pacifism. And he even fashions the key, right. you know, out of a weapon that Alana hands him. So he's like, no weapons, no weapons. Like, right. Let me just use this key. But then we see him regress a little bit because the second those constables fire at Alana, in the next panel, he brings up his shield and he says, quote, raise a hand at her again. I extinguish every one of you, end quote. And that's that's not a nonviolence way to react to that nope. situation. <laughs> And we take that quote from Marco seriously because we've seen him blow up multiple times in this story under pressure and lose control multiple times. So when he says, I'll extinguish every one of you, I believe him when he says that. So obviously, he's still working through some of his pacifism and his ideals. Another example is we touched on this earlier, but the fact that Marco and Alana haven't been intimate since Hazel's abduction, presumably for years now. And it's not until the moment they finally have hope that their daughter is alive, mm. that they can be intimate. Plus a little bit of adrenaline from jumping out of a building <laughs> off the 70th floor. They, they did a diehard into that rocket ship tree. <laughs> that really put them in the mood. It, it would put me in the mood too, to be honest. But my point in bringing that up is Hazel's narration almost frames that as like a right. positive thing. Oh, they, they aren't going to be intimate because they want to find their daughter first. And it's this unspoken vow between them. But... I actually kind of read that as problematic, that right. perhaps their relationship hasn't fully been patched up to the point where they feel like they need to be intimate with each other again, which we know is very foundational to their relationship. Absolutely. Marco and Alana have a lot of sex in this story. So the fact that they're not having sex, that's a red flag. Yeah, I agree that like the fact that it's all that something about their relationship is so entirely tied up in their daughter and not just the relationship between the two of them is definitely a red flag. You got to have a marriage outside of just being co-parents. That's really, really important. And so to wrap up my point, I, I guess what I'm, I'm not trying to say that our characters are incapable of growth, right? Because we, we do see some growth. Hazel has grown into a pretty self-confident young child, despite everything she's been through. And we also see that Marco and Alana's love for each other has grown. I mean, like once they bang, they, they bang yeah. on that tree. Yes. And so we see them operating once again as a single unit, which is so nice to see after mm -hmm. just the, the roller coaster that was volume four yeah. and their fight and their breakup and their separation. So we, we do see some growth, but we also see that temptation for Marco, for example, to fall back on violence. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my overall takeaway from these chapters was that with that growth, along with that growth, there are setbacks, there are new challenges, and there will always be that lingering trauma for our characters to overcome. Mm -hmm. And they're still working through it. And that's okay, because growth is not some sort of linear path, right? It's not a graph that just goes straight up. As you get better and better and grow as a person and mature emotionally, there will be ups and downs and hard days and new hurdles to overcome. And I think that is what makes these characters feel so real and so relatable, is that they too find themselves falling back on bad habits sometimes. They too struggle as they try to grow as people and parents and children. 
Yeah. I mean, I think people never really change, but people can grow. And like, that's the difference, right? Like as a tree grows, it becomes different, but it doesn't become a different tree. It just becomes a tree that is different than it was before. So I, yeah. I think that that's, I think that's right on. And I, again, it's part of how I like that both of our takeaways were about character development and just about all of the work <laughs> that it's, and it's not even just Brian, that Brian and Fiona do to like really make these characters whole and all of the character development that comes with it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up here with our favorite panels and favorite quotes. Do you want to go first with your favorite panel? Sure. So my favorite panel from today's reading is the one where Alana tells Marco to jump <laughs> into the speeding rocket ship tree off that 70th floor of that building. Mm -hmm. And Hazel's narration says her eyes said it all. And I just need to compliment, you know, once again, shower Fiona with praise because Fiona does some really incredible work with eyes mm -hmm. in these chapters. Mm -hmm. That line from Hazel made me flip back through the book and really pay attention to the eyes. And Fiona does an amazing job, particularly in this panel, capturing the look, the quote unquote look. And I think anyone who's been in a committed relationship knows when their partner gives them this look. Fiona captures it perfectly here. The look says so much with so little, right? Like just with the eyes, it's your partner saying, hey, I know what I'm asking you to do is crazy, but I love you and I believe in you and I'm throwing caution to the wind because we're in this together and that's all I need to know. We can do this together. Like there's so much said in just the eyes and the expression and props to Fiona for capturing that. I myself have gotten that look before. I know what that look feels like. Another great example of Fiona's eye work in these chapters is actually just a few pages before this panel where Alana does that fanatic speech and talks about being willing to die for the cause to scare off the constables. And I couldn't help but chuckle because her eyes are like almost these cartoonishly large crazed eyeballs that just make that scene so much funnier. Props to Fiona. Loved this panel where... Alana reaches out her hand and tells Marco to jump. What about you? What was your favorite panel from today's reading? So first of all, I can't remember whether I followed the assignment of just one panel or not before we went on our break, but I'm definitely going to bend the rules for this one because I have <laughs> two contrasting panels that I would like to use. But what's interesting is I am also going to talk about Fiona's conception of an execution of facial expressions, but I'm going to talk about a different character. And that is, who's, who's your favorite character on Saga, Abu? It's Goose Allen. You know this. Yes, Goose. And <laughs> one of the things that makes Goose so amazing is the way in which Fiona puts fully formed human facial expressions on a little tiny seal person's face. And these oh. two faces happen on facing pages. So pages that are opposite one another towards the end of chapter 32, where the first mm -hmm. thing we get to see to let us know that we're back on Quietus in the first panel is this wonderfully soul delighting close up of our seal man friend and his bright eyes and cute little whiskered face. And he's so excited. And he's so excited, of course, because Alana and Marco are coming back and being the exuberant little creature that he is, he can't hide that emotion, which Fiona has just captured perfectly in his like little bright eyes and sparkly yeah. whiskers. And he's just like, woo, so excited. And then the contrasting panel that shows the range that Fiona is able to portray through Goose's little seal face. Uh, it's on the facing page and it's right after Prince Robot the Fourth has said the thing about how everyone who gets close to Alana and Marco ends up dying. And we get a very different sort of like sourpuss reluctantly agreeing <laughs> Goose face as he's forced to admit that what Prince Robot the Fourth has said isn't 
exactly true, but it's also not false. Like there's clearly some right, merit to right. what Prince Robot the Fourth has said. So I'm always blown away, just as you were apparently with the facial expression work Fiona does with the human and the non-human characters in this book. I just think back to the the seahorse agent and how we're able to capture like the fear in the seahorse agent's eyes when the will shows up. And it's like, how did you how it's a line drawing of a fake seahorse on a beach. And similarly here with Goose, we get joy and just kind of like despondent, reluctant admittance just with a few little lines on a little seal man's face. So I think that has a lot to do with why Goose is probably the biggest fan favorite in this book. He's cute, but he's also like all the other characters in this book, well-rounded and he's cute with range. All right. So that's our favorite panels. How about quotes? What what really delighted you from this chapter, Abu? Or maybe not delighted, but enraged? <laughs> a little bit of both. I, I would say equally both. I teased this earlier, but my favorite quote, and also my least favorite quote from today's reading, is the line when Marco and Alana are in that hall of records, and they are discussing magic. And Marco says, quote, one can't conjure anything from thin air, dear. What your people call magic is actually an extremely complicated process of, end quote. And he gets cut off. <laughs> the audacity. The audacity, Brian Kavon. What a tease. We were about to learn about the extremely complicated process of magic, and we'll never know. And as a person who's obsessed with lore, as a person who's always searching for the mechanics of how my favorite fictional universes operate, this line was equal parts frustrating and equal parts hilarious for me. Mm -hmm. Because on one level, it feels like a cop-out, right? It feels like Brian is teasing us with an answer and then not providing it and probably doesn't even have an answer himself. <laughs> but then on another level, it feels a bit of, like a statement. It feels like Brian mm -hmm. kind of grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and saying, who the fuck cares about magic? It's just magic. Stop trying to find answers to everything, Abu. And for that, I do have to say thank you for keeping me humble, Brian. Because he's right. Do we need to know how the magic works in this universe to appreciate it? Probably not. Do we need to know the exact galactic quadrants of the solar graveyard? No. I would like to. <laughs> A part of me would like to know that information, but it's not critical to the story. And it feels like Brian is sort of speaking directly to me here, saying, who cares, Abu? It's just magic. Let it be fun magic. I agree with you. I don't think we will ever get, nor do I think that we need any sort of like Cimmerillion for the saga universe. Like <laughs> there's no codex that's coming. There's no like- I can't believe you would say that out loud. Now I want it. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though, In immediately right before this line, what sets it off is that Alana says to Marco, I hope that you never teach our daughter how to do something like that. And he says, what, spelling? I hope her grandma has taught her that much by now, which makes it sound like teaching a kid magic is as simple as teaching a kid spelling, which then of course <laughs> it's gonna make me curious. Like it's, right. it's as easy as spelling, but it's an extremely complicated process of something? Come on, man. I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel like you're right. I feel like he he he's Lucy with the football, right? He's like setting us up and then pulling it away to just be like, hey nerds, Stop with the nerd shit and just enjoy the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about you, Alan? What was your favorite quote from today? So for me, it's uh, just some good old hazel narration about childhood and kids growing up. This book is full of it. I don't know if I was so fixated on this because my own kid just started kindergarten last week. She's five, so she's 
basically how old Hazel is in this chapter, which is interesting to like now, I read this book for the first time before I had a kid, and then I read it later when we had a baby, and then I've read it again now that we have, you know, a four and five-year-old. And Hazel has caught up now to how old my own kid is, which is weird. Um, and there's bits of narration that occur right before Hazel reveals her wings to the teacher. And it goes like this, quote, no matter how much freedom they're given, most kids are still glorified props, carefully strutted from one secure location to the next. We're not children, we're eggs. But sooner or later, those eggs begin to crack. And as they emerge, the creatures beneath those fragile shells begin to understand that they possess more agency than they've ever dreamed. And when you finally realize you've been living your whole life inside of a shitty nest, there's only one thing to do. End quote. And oh, holy fuck, yeah. the whole thing is just way too real about how like little babies and toddlers are these delicate little eggs that you carry around and protect and do everything you can to keep them from having anything bad happen to them. But then almost without noticing, the eggs like crack open and burst forth on their own and emerge from their shells. And they all of a sudden start doing things that you have no control over. They take their own agency. Yeah. And I see my daughter doing this every day and it's terrifying. Oh. She makes decisions on her own. She decides things that she likes and doesn't like. She decides who she's going to hang out with at recess. All of these things. And like, all we can do now as parents is hope that we have taught her good lessons and continue to teach her lessons so that she treats people with kindness. But it's fucking wild, man. And of course, right after that, there's only one thing to do. You finish the narration, not with more words, but with what I almost chose as my favorite panel from this chapter of Hazel, full page panel, her four part wings spread wide, implying that the only thing a kid can do once they've lived in the nest their whole life is to fucking fly. And as a parent, you just have to let them do it, which is just... Uh, I didn't think I would already be thinking about this when my kid is five, but yeah. here we are. Yeah, leaving the nest and heading out on their own and flying using their wings. Wow. Well, comparing our two quotes, I'm over here complaining about <laughs> knowing the inner workings of magic, and you're over here like, Brian is giving me an existential crisis about my daughter. <laughs> That's that's the range of this story. Right. That's what I love so much about this story is that, like I said, the first time I read it, I was not in a committed relationship. I did not have any designs on having a family and I hadn't even think about it at all. And so like none of the kids stuff in this book functioned on an emotional level for me. It was all just plot to move the story along. But a sign of a good story, I think, is when different parts of it can hit you at different points of your life, depending on what you have going on. And I feel like this story really, really does that. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's it, Alan. That's the first half of volume six, chapters 31, 32, and 33. Yes. We're setting up a lot of storylines. Seems like they're going to converge. A lot of characters coming together. And we're just going to have to see what happens in the back half of this volume. Chapters 34, 35, and 36, which we'll be covering on our next Deep Dive episode. Uh, yes. I'm so excited that we're going to get to do that because remember, there's no new saga coming out in September, so we can't do a quick reactions episode. Brian and Fiona! <laughs> but after we do our back half of volume six episode, the next episode after that is going to be a whole new episode format that we can't wait to share with all of you. We're so excited. So as always, remember, hit us up, hazelstory at loraparty.com. We've gotten a bunch of good ideas for episode segments, but if you have more, hit us up. We're here. We read every email and we reply. That's right. And don't forget, magic is actually an extremely complicated process of...
All right, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. You can also follow our network on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music on the show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of amazing music. Thank you for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together. <laughs>